chapter 8, beginning with verse 26. Let me remind you that we have moved into a section that deals with the authority of Jesus, and last week saw that he calmed the storm. Now, I must say that of all the passages that follow that deal with his authority, I think it's not inappropriate that I have a favorite, and last week's is that favorite. I love preaching the text. I love dwelling upon that text. And um, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful thing that we were able to spend time last week with the calming of the storm and all that means. But a wonderful thing that we move on today to see also that having crossed the lake, that he casts out the demons from this man in Gadara. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we bow in humble reverence before your holy name, and we come with great gratitude that you have given to us the text before us this morning, and that you have given to us all of your word, in which we see that you are a holy God, in which we see that we are sinners deserving your just displeasure, and are without hope saving your sovereign mercy, and in which we see Jesus Christ mercifully provided by your love to redeem us from our awful sins. But Father, as we come as your people with many things that have been upon our minds and hearts, fatigued bodies and minds, and, and joys and, and many sorrows, we now would ask that you will enable us to focus alone upon Christ and upon this text. And we ask that the blessed Holy Spirit will work to open our hearts to show us our need and to show us the Redeemer, and that we may, as your people, so exalt in Christ that when we leave this place, we will not be able to keep our mouths quiet, but to share from the abundance of our hearts what Jesus has done for us, but also that those who may be here today who are lost and do not know you would be drawn out of darkness into light, and that you would regenerate some soul today, save and convert lost sinners is our prayer. Will you hear us, for we ask these things, not for our sake, but because your Son is truly worthy, and we ask it for his sake and in his name. Amen. Please stand with your copy of God's Word in your hand, Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, beginning with verse 26. This is the Word of God. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. 
Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, we saw as we began this section last week with Jesus calming the storm that there are accounts that reflect upon the authority of Jesus Christ. Last week, his authority over the created order. Today, his authority over the demonic realm. And then we will see his authority over sickness and even death and his authority even to provide by the feeding of the 5,000. So we see the authority of Jesus. We see the power of Jesus. We see, if you will, the lordship of Jesus. But again, let me say, it's so important that as we reflect upon these things, we not simply see that he's lord somehow out there. We need to see that this lordship is exercised over us, that he calls you and me to acknowledge him as lord, that he calls you and me in every area of life down into the details to recognize the lordship of Christ over all things, all men, over demons, yes, but also over my own heart and my own life and decisions. This text is for you. Now, as Jesus came into this world, God incarnate, in order that he might obey the law and go to the cross and shed his blood and be raised from the dead, we recognize that there is an acceleration of demonic activity that is permitted in God's providence in order that Jesus might have the opportunity to demonstrate his lordship and his authority. In 1 John 3, 8, we are told the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work, and we see him here destroying the devil's work. The scene opens in a Gentile territory opposite Galilee, And the first thing we see is this, a man in total bondage, a man in total bondage. This man, possessed by demons, was a slave. He was in complete darkness. He was dominated by an unclean spirit, indeed unclean spirits, demons. He was naked. He couldn't keep his clothes on. Because his mind was deranged. He lived among the tombs. One of the great New Testament scholars of a bygone day, Adolf Schlatter, said, only deranged people have a desire for death and decay. Well, he had a desire for death and decay because indeed his mind and heart and soul was deranged by the devil. 
They attempted to keep him under guard and bound by shackles so that he would not harm others or himself, but he simply broke the bands because the demonic evidently gave to him supernatural power, and he was bent on self-destruction. Indeed, the demons drove him out into the desert where the wild beasts would live. The man's consciousness and his identity is completely defined by the demonic. His mind, his heart, his thought, his soul, the attitudes of his will are lost in the demonic tormentors that now possess his body. And even though we're focusing on Luke, if we were also to take Matthew and Mark into our consideration here, we could see that the man is violent, that he cannot be controlled, that he's homicidal, and possibly even suicidal. Now I ask you, who here can conceive a more pitiable plight than this? Who here could conceive of a man more dominated by wickedness and evil and the devil than this? But let me say that even though it is a pitiable sight, and even though we do see something that is very extraordinary... This is a sight to be seen on various levels all around us today. Doesn't this demonstrate the condition of fallen humanity? Perhaps not demonstrating it so illustriously, but demonstrating it nonetheless. Perhaps not so overtly as in this passage, but we are living as unbelievers before we come to know Christ We are living among the dead. Indeed, the Apostle Paul says that we were children of wrath even as the rest and begins that passage in Ephesians 2 by saying that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. You see, Satan's agenda is to destroy. All the way back in the Garden of Eden we see this. His attempt was, and he was successful under the sovereignty of God, his attempt was to destroy, to distort, to disfigure, all that it means that we are created to be God's image bearers. And so now man, mankind, because of our fall in Adam, because of the succumbing to Satan's temptation, because of Adam's failure to lead as the federal head of the human race in obedience, in man's thinking, in his feeling, in music, in art, in work, in play, in philosophy, in relationships, and in our inner being. Satan's purpose is to turn man, God's image bearer, into an ugly, rebellious image. Now that's what we see in this passage, surely in a superlative way. This man who should be God's image bearer and should show it in the way in which he loves and lives, is completely deranged, and the ugliness of sin controls his life. Now I ask you, is there hope? The answer to that question leads to our second point. Yes, indeed, there is hope, because we see Jesus' authority over demons. Jesus' authority over demons. Now, reading Mark's gospel, the man actually, under the control of the demons, runs to Jesus. Jesus' coming brings about, as Edersheim says, a fresh paroxysm. They tremble, the demons do, before the Lord. We read in verse 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, 
What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? God, I beg you, do not torment me. And so the man under the control of the demon, indeed, demons, goes and falls before Jesus Christ, reminding us, of course, that a day is coming when these very demonic hosts will kneel before the exalted Christ and unwillingly and yet truly acknowledge Jesus as Lord, while the rest of us kneel before him who know him and will acknowledge him to be Lord from the heart. The demons tremble before Jesus, as we saw in verse 28. They know full well who Jesus is. They know why he has come, and so they speak as if they are one, using the man's own tongue. They know who Jesus is. They know that the arrival of the kingdom of God means the bringing of the beginning of the end of the world and domain of darkness. They know, as Herman Ritterboss put it, the coming of the kingdom is the initial stage of the great drama of the history of the end. They know, they sense, they understand Jesus has come. The second person of the Trinity is now standing before them incarnate in all of his sovereign authority. And they know within themselves that this is the great drama of the history of the end for them. And again in verse 28, the demons acting as one fear the eternal torment that Jesus might well bring upon them even now. What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? You see, all the demons speaking as one with me, speaking through the man's tongue, I beg you, do not torment me. And verse 31 actually repeats the theme, if you noticed. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Jesus Christ terrifies demons. He is the Lord. He is the sovereign over the demonic hosts. He terrifies demons. Because you see, life must change. The kingdom is broken in. A new Lord rules and reigns. And everything here is about the power of Jesus. It is about his lordship. The same Jesus that slept in the boat during the storm is here also in calm and sovereign control over the world of darkness. Yes, he controls the cosmos, but he also controls the demonic realm. Now listen, there are two kingdoms according to the Bible, and there are two kings. There is one kingdom and king of a dark realm, the other of light. One has a malevolent master, the other a gracious, benevolent one. One who is out to destroy and one who saves and heals. One who hates, one who loves, and the call is to conversion. There must be a transition from wrath to grace, out of the domain of darkness into the domain of light, out of Satan's kingdom into the kingdom of God. And you are either in one or the other kingdom being ruled by one master or the other. There is no sitting on the fence when it comes to Jesus Christ. Young people, you're, you're baptized children, most of you. The mark of the king of the kingdom of light is upon you. 
You are not your own. You are not free to live as you please. And true freedom is living as he pleases in his kingdom of light. The king has come. He calls you to discipleship. He demands your loyalty in all of life. And life cannot be the same since the king has come. And so Jesus' authority over demons, they quailed and quaked before him, and they fear that they may be thrown into the abyss. And then notice, thirdly, Jesus' deliverance of the demon-possessed man. Let's read verses 30 and 31 again. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion. For many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. What is your name? And the answer that again, using the man's tongue, all of the demons speaking with one voice say, my name is Legion. Now, what did that response mean? Well, we know that a Roman legion would represent 4,000 to 6,000 soldiers. Now, I cannot know for sure that when they said legion, they were saying there are 6,000 of us. But we know from Mark's gospel that there were 2,000 pigs that were drowned in the sea, in the Lake of Galilee. This is a large number of demonic beings that have hosted in this, have possessed this poor man. And the demon gave his true name. My name is Soldier. The man was tormented by a great host of demons who with one combined force would oppose the kingdom of light. Legion, it's a military term because by taking that name, they are saying the war is on. A war that they've already lost because they stand before the sovereign. A war that they will lose in the cross and in the resurrection. A war that they will be seen to have lost on the great day when Jesus comes again and casts them into the lake that burns with fire. But nonetheless, it's irrational. Sin is always irrational, always. And this demonic host is at war with God. An organized opposition to the kingdom of God. But there were pigs in the area. Verses 31 and 32, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Now why? Why did the demons want to go into the pigs? Well, it was better than hell. Jesus has the authority to cast them into the abyss because of who he is. They did not want yet to go into eternal torment. The time of the end has not yet come, but they know that the one with whom they are dealing has the right to judge them now. By the way, some of you have read a certain philosopher in the past who said that he could not be a Christian for a number of reasons, and one of those reasons is the way that Jesus treated the pigs. And he was very serious about it. As you see, Jesus does not share his concern. They are his, and he must use them to serve 
his conquest of evil as he pleases. You know, what excuses men will come up with for rebelling against Christ? I won't spend much time here. If you will let pigs keep you from Jesus Christ, there's not much I can say to you. But God can save you. So we have here something that is weird, something that is unearthly. The demons fill the swine and the herd panics and the herd rushes madly to the cliff and they splash in the water. Can't you see the pigs? Can't you hear them? What a horrific sound it must have been. Can't you see them falling over the cliff, 2,000 of them, and splashing in the water and all drowning? What a horrible sight it was. Verse 33, then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Why did Jesus allow the demons to go into the herd? Why did they want to go? They didn't want to go to hell. Why did Jesus allow them to go? Jesus, I think in this passage, is demonstrating the intention of the demons for the man that was possessed. Their design all along was the destruction of the man. Their purpose for for the man is not one bit different than the madness to which they drove the pigs to destruction. It was their intent. It is always... Satan's intent to destroy men. So we need to come to grips with the fact that when we go our own way, when we do not trust in Christ, do not believe in him, when we reject his gospel, that we are really going Satan's way and that his aim is to destroy you. That his goal is to destroy God's creation and it is to obliterate the image of God. And this is what he attempts to do in the inspiring of wicked men to put Jesus on a cross. But there you see again a wondrous example of how no matter what Satan attempts to do, it is under the sovereignty of God because the cross was no accident but planned and purposed by God for your redemption from eternity past. That cross was God's decree, and nothing can stop God's purpose to see his image in all of creation completely restored through the work of Jesus Christ. And so the man is free. Look at verses 34 to 36. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, there were some people actually watching this, the ones that owned the pigs. The herdsmen saw what had happened. They fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Mark also puts it so beautifully because he has a series of participles, seated, clothed, restored, The man who had been completely a maniac under the control of the demons is now in his right mind. And one evidence, he put on clothing. Clothing is a sign of restoration. What a contrast. Redemption, restoration. Previously, chains could not hold him. A dark master had chained his soul. But now he is free. Do you hear? This man is free. His humanity is restored by Jesus Christ, the true image of God, the Son 
who comes to restore man the broken image of God. As Calvin put it, though we are not tormented by the devil, yet he holds us as his slaves till the Son of God delivers us from his tyranny. Naked, torn, disfigured, we wander about till he restores us to soundness of mind. And this is true. When we ask about the world that around us has gone absolutely mad, and I'm not in any way suggesting that everyone involved is demon-possessed, but certainly we see that Calvin is right. Naked, torn, disfigured, we wander about till he restores us to soundness of mind. Just think, just think how recreative God is. Just think. This is akin to our resurrection from the dead for a man who lived among the tombs. Every miracle of Jesus is an overcoming of death, an exercise of the resurrection power of Jesus before it has taken place. And every miracle of Jesus foreshadows the restoration of the entire cosmos at the end of the age. When all of the evil, all of the ugliness, all of the demonic, all of the madness, all of the unsoundness, all of the disruption, the strife, the cacophony, the disharmony, the raucous, the satanic noise of this world will be over. Will be over. What a picture we find here of the recreative power of God in the life and heart and soul of man, whether demon-possessed or not. Wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't you look at this man and say, what a God we have, what a recreative God, what a Savior, Jesus Christ, who can do this for this man. There he is. He once raved in his madness, and now he is sound in his mind, clothed, ready to serve Jesus. He's a totally renewed and different man. You'd think anybody would want this Jesus around, wouldn't you? Well, notice with me, fourthly, that the community loved their swine, but did not love Christ. Verse 37, then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. What's going on here? Well, I think that it's very probable that they see that there's a severe blow to their economy. This is a Gentile area. They're raising pigs. They've lost already 2,000 of them. Maybe the thought is if Jesus stays around, we'll lose it all. And of course, there's Jesus' very deeply disturbing presence Verse 35, then people came out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They were afraid. Because you see, holiness both repels and attracts. 
Holiness repels and attracts. It attracts those whom God is calling to himself. But it repels those who want their sin and not Christ and who feel better off without him. Those who take their point of departure from within themselves. And you might remember the words of Adolphe Minot that I've quoted to you before. There is no peace for the man who takes his point of departure from within himself. Now imagine this. They want him to depart. They see Jesus Christ as calamitous for their lives. What do you or I love more than Christ? What do we pursue more than Christ? Is Christ uppermost in our affections and in our wills? But think, they saw the mercy of Christ. They saw this stupendous miracle. Some of them did. Others have seen the results of this stupendous miracle. They've seen the mercy of God, the pity of God, the power of God, the authority of Christ. And you would have thought they would have said, look at this Look at him. Look, who is this? Look at what he can do. We want nothing more than for you to stay. We want to know you. We want to understand you. We want to, we want to be protected by you. We want you to stay in our midst. But they want him to leave. Because natural men love the world more than Christ. Or as Edwards put it, Lusts more filthy than swine. Those are the things we love. We value our lusts more than Christ. We long for this world system more than we long for Christ. You have seen as great a thing here as is in this text, I can tell you. You have seen all around you people loved by Jesus Christ You have seen them converted. You have seen many a person who has come out of darkness into light. You have seen the love of this congregation, the humility, the the reverence for God, the, the service one to another. You have seen something just as great as was seen in this passage. Indeed, greater because you have all of the Bible to interpret it, and you know that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and it's all because of his resurrection that these things are happening in our hearts and in our midst. You've seen greater than they saw in this passage, I think. And yet it's still true that some whole churches, some entire churches, have asked Jesus to go. They don't put it that way. They reinterpret Jesus. They say, well, you know, the message needs to be altered. It needs to be made modern and up-to-date. Our Christian ethics needs to change and reflect the ethics of the world around us. Um, But really what they're doing is asking Jesus to go. And individuals do the same. And here's the warning. If that's you, don't continue like this. Repent and see the wonder of Christ. They preferred swine to mercy. No love of holiness. Someone says, well, oh, if I come to Christ, I'll have to give up my freedom. What freedom is that? Freedom to continue on in your own way, in opposition to God, freedom to sin. Don't you know that free will is a slave? 
The Bible speaks of bondage of the will, that if you are in that condition, you are led about by the evil one, even though you may not recognize it, and you love those things that will ultimately destroy you, that you have made a covenant with hell. What freedom is that? Freedom is this man, once mad, now in his right mind, wanting to know and serve and loving Jesus Christ. That's freedom. And so, what did Jesus do? Well, they had seen him one time, one time, once, and they asked him to go, and he left. He went away. Maybe somebody here has heard the gospel over and over and over again. You have asked him to leave. They saw him once. You've heard the gospel message many times. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I don't want that Christ. I'm here because my parents make me. I'm here because... But you don't want the gospel not to control you. You don't want the lordship of Christ over your life. Well, we know what grace can do. And let it be stressed, but from the standpoint of human responsibility, do you see in this text, he doesn't stay where he's not wanted. And I cannot help but think of Romans 1, and God gave them over, and God gave them over, and God gave them over. You don't want me? Then I'll get in my boat and sail away. I'll just leave. Can't you see the tragedy of that? Can't you see the tragedy of that? And then there's eternity. It's written in your heart. You know it's there. You know the judgment is coming, and we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and how will Christ treat you on that day when you have said, I don't want you, I don't want you, I don't want you. When the messengers of Jesus were rejected, he said, Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city, because they had rejected the message of the messenger to believe and repent. So this is a deep and serious matter, isn't it? We see in this passage the sovereign power of Jesus to deliver. We also see the human responsibility here to believe and repent and to receive him. And we see people saying, I don't want Christ. And he leaves. Thank God for this knowledge that the worst slave of Satan here today is not beyond the reach of Jesus Christ. I can testify. Contrast the former demoniac with the populace, however. There is here a call to mission. Did you see it in verses 38 and 39? The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, and Jesus But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you 
And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. The man has an opportunity right where he is. Of course he wants to be with Jesus. Of course he wants to go with him. The man had freed him from utter madness and insanity. He had cast out this legion of demons, but Jesus says to him, in essence, you have a task right here where you are. The man has this opportunity to spread the good news about Jesus, and he does it. He does it. He goes and he spreads. He's, he's a missionary for God's sake. The foundation has been laid for the gospel to be proclaimed throughout this entire region, the region of the Decapolis. And that's what happened, probably because of this man's witness. Later, when Jesus ministers in the Decapolis, many had already heard about Jesus Christ. And we also have a message to tell. Rome was conquered by the message, Jesus is Lord. And we have that message as well. Do not allow the political correctness of our culture, this new approach to intolerance, to keep you from bearing witness to our Lord when you have opportunity on an airplane, with a coworker, with a neighbor, with a friend, in the grocery store, because the day is coming when we will not be able to tell others about Jesus. And what a day that will be when we see the demonic host cast into hell forever. And we will shout our hallelujahs. But you know, if our focus is on the demons at the end of this sermon, we've really missed the whole point, haven't we? Just as with the stilling of the wind and the waves, the question was, who is this? And so after the casting out of these demons, the question that the text should bring to our mind is that question, who is this, that he even casts out demons? Who is this? It is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, become man without ceasing to be God, obeying the law that you broke in your place, going to a cross to shed his blood to pay the penalty of your sins, rising from the dead, interceding, and with the promise of his coming. That's who this is, the sovereign Lord of all, who says to us, declare my glory among the nations. And all through this room, there are people for whom the Lord and sovereign mercy has shown the liberating power of the kingdom of God. And you should know the good news that the Lord has come and can do this for anyone here. The kingdom has come because the king has come. Now, believer in Christ, let us end with this encouragement. According to Ephesians 6.12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. The great event of Christ's return awaits us. Until then, we are still doing battle with the principalities of dark places and the demonic hosts. But Jesus tells us, the conqueror of demons, I might add, Jesus tells us, and the last chapters of the Bible tell us, that we're going to be successful because Jesus is successful. 
and he will cast the devil and the beast and the false prophet into hell, and they shall be tormented day and night. We shall shout our hallelujahs, and the raucous cacophony of the demonic madness of this world will be over. I call upon you, believer in Jesus, lift your eyes by faith. Lift your eyes to that day. Live in the reality of that day now. Let it determine how we think and how we live our Christian lives together. Lift your eyes to that day when to the thrill of our hearts it will be apparent to all the Lord God omnipotent reigns. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. And God's people said, Amen.